Welcome to That's So Disturbing, a true crime podcast. And this one is getting started in a really small town in Texas named Wiley. And the case takes place in 1980, where there's only 3,700 people living in this town. On June 13th of that year, let me add, Friday the 13th of June, a couple neighbors go in. They're hoping to not see anything crazy or disturbing. (laughs) They find a body. The body of a woman who is very clearly dead and is lying in a pool of blood. This person had been dead for quite a few hours and the blood that they were laying in had become thick, dark, goopy, was everywhere. And rightfully so, the neighbors had no idea what to do. A lot of the police officers involved also felt overwhelmed by this case because, of course, it's a really small town in Texas. But who is this woman they found? But who is this person that they found on the floor? Her name was Betty Gore. She was 30 years old. She had two kids. And her husband at the time was away on a work trip. The events on Friday, June 13th of 1980 have also inspired companies to release reenactments of this case. Extremely recently, too. The Hulu docuseries came out in 2022, and now HBO was this year in 2023. And when I was watching these, one, I thought they were pretty different from each other. And the way that they chose to lay out the timeline, portray the different people involved in this, what information they included versus not included. And I found myself wondering what really happened? What was that timeline like? How long did this go on for? And who was Betty? She wasn't talked about a lot in either of them. And when she was portrayed in Hulu, they really didn't show her in the best way. It felt like they were taking all negative moments of Betty and compiling them to illustrate a story. But I want to tell you more about her. She was born in Norwich, Kansas on January 9th, 1950. This was also a really small town, believe it or not, even smaller than Wiley. Only a couple hundred people lived in this town, but Betty thrived here. She was well-liked throughout her adolescent years. She played clarinet in the band. She was guard on the girls' basketball team. 
She was in the school plays. She ran track. She was in Girl Scouts. She hung out with all of her friends. She kept herself really busy despite how small of a town this was. She, as she got older, she even had boyfriends, but nothing ever too serious because as she was getting ready for college, she knew that that's not where her life was going to end up. She wanted to get out of this small town. She hated it. There was not a lot to do. And if you think about it, there's only a couple hundred people there. So you're seeing the same people all the time. And Betty was over it. In the year 1968, Betty graduated high school and our girl receives an $800 scholarship to Southwestern College at Winfield, Kansas. And of course, she sees the cutest boy, man, I should say, in her math class. But this isn't a fellow classmate of hers. This is the teaching assistant of that freshman math class. His name was Alan. He noticed her right away. Betty was adorable. She had dark hair, dark eyebrows, beautiful skin. She commanded the room around her when she walked in. She wasn't someone that was extremely bubbly, but she was always composed, very intelligent. She kept to herself. She wasn't a gossiping queen. She stayed very on top of her studies. She was even that kind of student where if she was given an assignment and a due date, she would turn it in early and not just like a couple hours early. She was turning this a weekend early. So she was responsible. She was articulate. She knew what she wanted and what she wanted was Alan. So when she sees him as this teaching assistant, she also recognizes that she sucks at math. She's not great at it. Doesn't come easy to her. And Betty's not one to settle for just getting the average grade. So she goes up to Alan. She asks him for some tutoring. Of course, he says yes. He thinks she's so cute. Of course. So they start meeting for private tutoring sessions. I know, so steamy. And once that semester is over and she's done taking that particular math class, they begin dating and they fell for each other hard. So hard that they got engaged not long after and they were married on January 25th, 1970. Alan was a little bit nerdier. He had a receding hairline already. He studied computer analysis um, in graduate school. Honestly, Betty's family did not understand this dynamic. They obviously knew because their daughter's amazing. They knew why Alan would be interested in her, but they didn't know why Betty was interested in him. He was kind of plain, wasn't super fit, very nerdy, and kept to himself. And he was a little shy and quiet, but they saw that their daughter was happy and that's all they cared about. After they're married, Alan continues on through graduate school, but part of that requires him to still work, and a lot of that also required travel. Betty, in this marriage, becomes very 
codependent upon Alan in more specifically a physical sense. She hates when he's gone. On one of these trips in 1971, Alan is gone for six weeks. And in this time, Betty does call him. They stay in touch, but she is so lonely. They're recently married. She wants to be around her new husband. She's young. She has the energy. And unfortunately, in that time, she has an affair with a fellow student while she's still in school. And when Alan comes home within a few days, Betty confesses everything. And to kind of illustrate Alan's personality, from what I understood in the readings that I found, whether it was in a book called Evidence of Love or the news from local writers, Alan was upset about this affair, but he... He really didn't take it personally. He he knew that Betty did not enjoy being alone. And part of him felt like this was some sort of way of getting back at him. And he just, he did not take it very seriously. But that was kind of his personality. Everything just was mild. Nothing got him super excited, but he never felt really low. He seemed to be very in the middle all of the time. This did affect him, but not to a very extreme extent that maybe myself or other people would feel. So they continue to move on through life. And in 1973, Betty receives her teaching certificate. And she was the first one in her family to have a college education. She was elated. She had always wanted to be a teacher. So she gets her first job as a substitute teacher in Plano, Texas. And she starts here because at the time that she received her degree, it was a little late in the year for her to apply to a full-time teaching position, which she was totally okay with. That did not bother her. She was still on track for the career path that she really wanted. So she starts teaching. Ugh, it's not what she thought it would be. The kids are kind of crazy. They don't listen. They're not respectful. (laughs) Betty was a little bit irritable. She was touchy. She really wanted things to be her way. And from what I gathered, I think she wanted it to be that way because that was what she saw success was. And she wanted her students to do well. And for them to do well... She would have preferred that they behaved a certain way. So Betty had a little bit of a hard time acclimating to her teaching life. But in 1974, just the following year, she has their first child. She was so happy after this. Like it just made everything in her life come together She felt a little bit more purpose. She felt less lonely with, you know, Alan being gone all the time for work. And she just saw this new sense of responsibility that she really took pride in. According to sources, 
like the local newspapers and books and interviews with Alan, Betty really seemed to struggle with postpartum depression. She felt really despondent. She would be really sad, frustrated, irritable. And a lot of that manifested itself into physical ailments like joint pain, back pain, head pain, stomach pain. And Betty was frequently going to the doctor to try to get answers as to what was happening with her body. Why was she feeling this way? And what could she do to treat this? And Betty really did try to find those answers. She switched doctors from male primary care physicians to a female gynecologist. And for the most part, they told her the same thing. They would prescribe her pain meds, psych meds, hormones. They tried everything. And Betty was feeling really frustrated. But she still had a light within her for her new... In the fall of that same year, she began teaching a second grade class at Davis Elementary Still felt really frustrated with these students. So she continues on through the school year. And unfortunately, in 1975, the school told her that they did not want her to continue teaching full time at that school. And for Betty, this was her first form of rejection, especially a rejection of this career path that she really believed in her soul that this was what she was meant to do and she wanted to do it along with this rejection she also saw that the person who was replacing her had less experience and was younger than her and it really hurt her it made her feel inadequate it really dampened her spirits it really gets worse for Betty here too because Students here really see those buttons and those pain points within Betty and they push them. They push them so far to the point where they are showing up on her property late at night, vandalizing her home with eggs, throwing eggs at her house, and writing the word Igor on the front. And Betty is so upset by this. She's frustrated with the fact that these students are coming around and they're really taunting her by going up to her home, her safe place. So Betty feels frustrated with her work life. Alan is gone all the time for work. And I hate to admit this for Betty, <laughs> but she would call Alan's work. She would call his boss and tell him, can you please just not send him on these work trips? Ugh, and Alan really hated this too. He hated that Betty called his boss. He thought that was really ballsy of her. And on one of his last longer work trips that he took, she went with him for a week, and when she came back, he still called that boss again. And she told him she did not understand why he had to go on these super long business trips. 
And Alan at this point was like, okay, Miss Betty is not going to get used to the fact that I have to travel for work. So at that time in 1977, that is when Alan transfers to Dallas to continue work. And they end up moving to Wiley, which is that same town I mentioned where Betty was a substitute teacher. She transfers from the sixth grade class who, yeah, those were the ones that were egging her house. She transfers from that sixth grade class to the fifth. And then this year, Betty and Alan are attending one of their usual church services. But on stage, she sees women talking and presenting a sermon about women in ministry. And Betty is captivated. Luckily, those two women went to a nearby church called the Church of Lucas. It was a Methodist church. And shortly thereafter, Betty and Alan begin attending this church. But who were those two women that had Betty so enthralled? One was Candy Montgomery and the other was Jackie Ponder. And Jackie was the minister at the Church of Lucas, head lady. She was amazing at her job. She really loved everyone that attended. And she was very personal. And she was Candy's best friend. A little bit of backstory to their friendship. They really hadn't been friends for that long. Only a few months. This was still happening in the year 1977. But Candy... And Jackie became besties really quickly. Candy had a lot of time to invest in this friendship because Candy was a stay-at-home mom. Candy felt that she had too much time and just needed more excitement. Candy was the same age as Betty. She was born on November 15th, 1949. So just a couple months before Betty was born in January of the following year. Candy had her two kids, and that was it. That was all she wanted, because shortly thereafter, Miss Girl got her tubes tied, and she said, I'm done. I had my girl. I had a boy. That was all that I wanted, and my family's perfect now. Her husband, his name was Pat. Pat had a great job at Texas Instruments, made really good money for that time. They took pride in their house. They did a ton of renovation to it, and lived over in a nearby town of Plano, which I had mentioned earlier, but these towns made kind of a triangle with each other. So in this case, the important areas are Lucas, that's where the church was, Wiley, and Plano. So Candy starts attending this church and that's when she meets Jackie Candy had been living in that area for a while, but Candy was not super religious in any way. Um, they weren't attending a regular church service often, um, and but they had been in Plano since 1974. Once they start attending, Candy gets involved in any possible way that she can, doing service work, speaking, helping Jackie with anything that she needs. And Betty comes along. She starts attending the services, but she is not bubbly like Candy or Jackie is. She's not 
one to steal the attention from everyone in the room or really want to get that attention from everyone. But she's feeling really frustrated with her work life. Betty wants to take another approach to life and she wants to start fostering children, which she does. She takes into, they go pretty well. They don't stay with her long-term and her third foster child that she takes in kind of solidified the idea that she really did not want to keep doing this. The child had suffered from a lot of abuse in their household and Betty was not prepared to take this on. This was just not her calling. Comes pregnant in June of 1979. Candy actually throws Betty a surprise baby shower. Which if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, okay, Taylor, the timeline isn't tracking here. Why would Candy have thrown Betty a baby shower? Did they know each other? Were they best friends? From what I gather, they definitely were not besties. They talked every now and then. Their kids were really close with each other, though. Uh, Candy's oldest and then what would be considered Betty's oldest child now that she's pregnant with another They would hang out pretty frequently and have sleepovers with one another. But Betty and Candy did not call each other. They didn't really confide in one another about personal things. However, what's really odd is that this baby shower is happening. And one person in the room, besides Candy, would have known this. But Candy was sleeping with... Betty's husband, Alan, during. They had the affair starting on December 12th, exactly. Candy and Alan had meticulously planned out this affair, so much so that they wrote out two long lists of the whys and why nots (laughs) of why they should have this affair. They were really skeptical about it. They wanted it with each other, probably Candy more than Alan, Alan had never been with another woman other than Betty his entire life. He was a little inexperienced, was not a ladies' man by any means. Candy wanted this affair. She wanted excitement in her life, and she had started hitting on Alan in the summer of that year of 1978. She was 28 at the time, and her and Alan were on the church volleyball team. And she says... That she hadn't considered him before, but they bumped, collided into each other, if you will, during a volleyball match. And she said he smelled sexy. And she was like, okay, why not Alan? You know, like I've been wanting to spice up my life. Candy's been reading these steamy romance novels and talking with her besties, Jackie and this woman named Sherry all the time about what she's reading about saying and in a joking ish manner that she was like, Oh, what if I had an affair? And unfortunately for Jackie, she's in the middle of a divorce and somehow candy uses this time to tell Jackie that she's kind of jealous of her. She's getting a new start on life. She can be with whoever she wants to be with 
Her marriage with Pat is good. It's stable. It's fine, but their sex life is non-existent. There's no real romance. Candy wants something more exciting. So when she just collides into Pat, when she collides into Alan on the volleyball court, she thinks, Meh, maybe he would be a good suitor. So she just goes up to him in the parking lot after a volleyball game and gets into his car. And all she tells him is, I just wanted to tell you that I am attracted to you and I don't know what I want to do about it, but I'm tired of thinking about it. So I just wanted to tell you. And she skedaddles out of his car and Alan is like, what the, a woman is interested in me? It really gets to his head because he's thinking about it all the time. Up until the next time they have volleyball practice and Alan goes up to Candy and he's just like, girl, what did you mean by this? She tells Alan, get in my car. So they get into her car and she literally says, right when they sit down, would you be interested in having an affair? And Alan is so taken aback by this. And he already just starts going into what this would do to his marriage he doesn't want to hurt Betty and he tells Candy that, look, Betty had an affair at one point and it really hurt me and I, I don't want to do that to her. Candy isn't pushing him. She's like, okay, dude, that's fine. I just wanted to throw it out there. You don't have to do anything. I don't want to hurt my husband either. I just want to have an affair. Alan kind of gives mixed signals here with leaving Candy with a kiss. Gets out of her car. And they continue communicating with one another through phone calls, volleyball practice, and they really solidified their plans when Candy invites him over for lunch one day. And that's when they come up with their whys and why nots of why they should have an affair. They both decide to follow through with it. And that's how we know <laughs> the exact date that they started meeting one another at a hotel that was close to Alan's work. Um, somehow, back in this time, which really wasn't that long ago, Alan had two-hour lunch breaks. I'll say that again. Alan had two-hour lunch breaks. And to get the most out of this time, Candy would pack him food and bring it to him. And after they would have lunch, have sex... Candy insisted that they take a shower at the hotel so they wouldn't smell like each other. Keep in mind, this is in December of 1978. They start to meet about every other week unless something comes up and they can't meet each other for whatever reason. It's in June that Candy throws Betty this baby shower. Betty's been pregnant this entire time. Not only has she been pregnant, she's been miserable. Betty does not enjoy being pregnant. She's gone to her doctors to talk about this. She gains weight. Betty gains weight like any pregnant person would, but she sees every single ounce that is added to her body and she feels uncomfortable. She feels heavy. She feels unattractive. She feels worthless. She feels isolated. Because her husband is still traveling for work every now and then. Granted, it's not as much as it was at his old job. 
at their old at his old location. But Betty isn't really making any close friends at the church. She's not making close friends with those that she teaches with at the local school. And even though she admired Jackie so much at this sermon that she first saw her in, she would go up to her and say hi. She gave her condolences when she found out that she was getting a divorce. She really adored Jackie, but Jackie was not picking up what Betty was putting down. And Betty did not know how to initiate that friendship. She really struggled with it. Alan was her best friend. Betty did not show other people what she was struggling with emotionally and mentally. She came off very reserved, but she didn't tell people about her mental health, her physical health, how she felt about this pregnancy. And she did. But she was honest with Alan about this. And he was the person that made her feel so stable and secure. So at this baby shower, that was the first time that Betty was surrounded by women and really felt a part of something. Everyone said that you could just see her glowing and beaming and like she was, she was just part of everyone. She was part of this community and she couldn't have even expressed into words like how much this meant to her. Meanwhile, the woman who's throwing her this baby shower is sleeping with her husband. That's in June of that year. And when Candy and Alan are meeting at this hotel, he tells her, look, I am super stressed about if we are ever together, I'm not going to get a call about Betty going into labor. So we need to take a break for a little bit until she has this baby. And then, you know, we can see where things are. Betty has their baby in July of that year. Even after she has this baby, Alan and Candy meet but they both say that it was just really weird after this. It wasn't like, and it wasn't even crazy before that. Candy said that the sex was pretty lackluster. It wasn't anything special. It didn't last very long. Alan was very inexperienced, but it was kind of the behavior of it all, you know, like sneaking around, going to a hotel and they became more of best friends than anything. They would talk to each other about, their spouses. Alan would talk about work. Candy would talk about her husband for the most part. She would talk about her day to day. And they just became good friends for one another. But the dynamic was different after Betty had her child. And worse, Betty was determined to feel better. She had just had this baby She's finally got the thing out, right? Like she did not enjoy pregnancy whatsoever. So she wants to feel good. And one night she initiates sex with Alan. But unfortunately, that was one of the days that him and Candy had met. So he really wasn't in the mood and he really couldn't get in the mood. Betty doesn't know this, though, and she takes it so personally she thinks that he's not attracted to her anymore, that maybe he doesn't love her. And she doesn't understand what's so wrong with her that he doesn't want to have sex. So shortly after this, Betty and Alan decide to go to this thing called Marriage Encounter. This retreat, which was a weekend. 
you'd continue to stay involved with it even after that. You would meet up with couples who had attended this. And this was in October of 1979. And Alan had already been trying to break things off with Candy. He said things, you know, were difficult at home. He noticed Betty was struggling and he gets a new job that he's a little bit more enthralled with and tells Candy that, you know, things are different now. Maybe this affair has come to an end. So later in that year, that's when they go to Marriage Encounter. It's from a Friday to a Sunday. Candy actually takes their kids and watches them. And this retreat is all about your feelings, talking about your feelings, talking about things that you probably avoid talking about with each other. And there's about 36 plus people at this retreat. So there's quite a few married couples there that they can relate to, talk to, and they don't feel alone in whatever they're struggling with. And they see other people thriving or not doing well. And it kind of keeps them in this space where it's open communication. And that's what this retreat encouraged. This retreat gives them notebooks and pamphlets that goes into detail of what they need to be doing when they're alone together on this retreat. And one of those questions that they asked was, what do you like about each other as a couple? And one thing that Betty had written in her notebook was that special feeling I get when we're together, warm and happy. It's horrible when we're not. It's like I'm only half of me. Maybe that means I'm not secure enough. I don't think so. Your presence is just so important to me. And then Betty becomes even more vulnerable and talks about sex. She said that she grew up in a household that never talked about it. She didn't know what it was going to be like. And she felt more comfortable with sex when she was drinking alcohol. But she didn't like the taste of it. But she also analyzed whether or not that was bad, that she needed alcohol to have sex. And she felt really embarrassed about it. And she really wanted to keep up her physical appearance. That pregnancy, it was just not all that she had dreamed it would be. It was actually really awful on Betty. And she'd gained weight she was so worried that this was impacting their marriage. And Alan and Betty really became so close after this retreat. And Marriage Encounter was very hit or miss. People either loved it, they hated it, wasn't their jam, or it was just kind of like, meh. But Alan and Betty thrived because of this Marriage Encounter. So when they came back, Candy, of course, has heard the rumors about this. And she's kind of worried that she's going to lose Alan. So when they come to pick up their kids, she, you know, sighed. She has like a little side conversation, barely a conversation, a comment with Alan. And she says, okay, so how was it? And he said it was good. And she said, what do you, what does that mean? And he says, I don't know. So... They pick up their kits and they leave after this. So this is at the end of 1979. After this marriage encounter, Alan really solidifies to Candy that this is over. 
He said that they had a really life-changing experience on this trip. Betty is the connection she made at Marriage Encounter to continue friendships with other married couples. She kind of drank the Kool-Aid with them and she would talk to other people about this experience and not necessarily recruit others to go to Marriage Encounter, but she would tell them her experience and really encourage them to go. And Alan saw this change in her. So ever since they had gotten back, he told Candy, look, we, I'm done. This affair isn't working for me anymore. I don't think it's good for either of us. Candy's not happy about this. She decides, you know, that she really is too emotionally involved with Alan and she tries to get over him by sleeping with someone else that she knows and that does not fix anything. She gets some opinions from Betty and Alan about their experience at Marriage Encounter and she decides to go with her husband, Pat. They don't have nearly as spiritual of an experience as Betty and Alan did, but it does do them some good. And later on, in 1980, at the beginning of the year, Alan does find out that Candy has an affair. Candy is gone for a night with some of her girlfriends, and Alan's feeling really nostalgic, and he decides to go upstairs and look through all the old cards that they had written each other. And in those cards, he finds a letter from Alan who was saying that he enjoyed their time together. Pat finds this letter from Alan, and... He doesn't go into a full fit of rage. Instead, he goes out the next morning and he buys a dozen roses and writes Candy a really long letter. He hands it to her and he says, I have this letter for you. I want you to read it and then tell me when you're done reading it. And Pat really believes that this affair was his fault. He thinks that he is the one to blame and he feels like he owes Candy more. So they really start to work on their marriage with one another. And this is when we get to the horrible day of Friday, June 13th of 1980. 6.45 in that morning, Betty and Alan wake up. It's early <laughs> and Alan has to go on a work trip to Minnesota. And as you can imagine, Betty's not thrilled about this, but in a week, they're going to be going to Europe together and they're so excited. So Alan tells her, look, Betty, this sucks, but, but we're going to be going on a trip together. And that wasn't the only thing that was bothering Betty, though. Betty was late for her period, and she was beside herself. She was so scared. She did not want to be pregnant again. She hated being pregnant. She made it very well known to Alan that she did not like being pregnant, so she was so scared. She was stressed about that. She was stressed about Alan leaving for a work trip. She didn't like being alone. And to try to comfort her, Alan just continues to bring up their trip that they're taking, and that alleviates some of Betty's anxiety. And Alan gets in his car, and he leaves to go to his regular work day because he decides he's still going to go to work, and then from work he'll go to the airport. 
Betty waves by to him and their one-year-old baby is with her in her arms. And that's the last time that he sees Betty alive. He leaves work at 8 a.m. And at 9 a.m., that's when Candy is arriving at the Church of Lucas that they attend. She's giving a sermon to the kids there. And once it's finished, she starts to go through a mental list in her head of all the things that she has to get done. One of those is that her kids want Betty's daughter to spend the night again. They want to have another sleepover because the new Star Wars movie had just come out and they all want to go see it together. So Candy decides, you know what? Totally cool. I'm a cool mom. Obviously, she can spend the night again. But in order for her to spend the night, she needs to go get a swimsuit for her daughter because she's involved in some swimming lessons. So she's finished with this sermon for the kids and she knows that there's a puppet show at 11 a.m. where all the kids perform and their parents come to see all that they've learned and watch them put on this cute little performance. So Candy thinks, all right, I'm going to go ahead and leave this church go pick up a swimsuit from Betty and then pick up some Father's Day cards because this is in June. So this remember, this is June 13th. Father's Day is coming up. So she's going to knock out a couple things she has to get done. So she heads over to Betty's house unannounced. She doesn't even tell her she's coming. And Betty was hanging out at home with their baby, watching some TV, and she opens the door to Candy, invites her in. Candy says, hey, The kids want to have another sleepover tonight. Is it cool? Betty is completely fine with this and says, yeah, just keep her another night. And the two of them get to talking. Candy tells Betty about this business that she started with her BFF Sherry and hands her, (laughs) even hands her a business card. And once they're starting to wrap up the conversation, Candy's like, hey, all right, um, I'm going to head back. I have some errands I need to run where is your daughter's swimsuit? And Betty, according to Candy, asks her if she's having an affair with her husband. Candy says no at first. And then Betty rephrases her question and says, were you having an affair with my husband? And Candy says, yes, I was. Betty doesn't say much. And again, According to Candy's recollection of the events of this day, Betty comes, Betty leaves the conversation, goes out to the garage, comes back, and in her hands is an axe. Candy's immediately terrified and is telling her, Betty, it's over, it's been over, it's done, please don't do this. Betty sets it down, she goes to get the bathing suit. And she also hands Candy some peppermints because her daughter hates putting her head underwater and to reward her, she gives her peppermint candies. Betty's handing her the candy and that's when Candy puts her hand on Betty's shoulder and says, I'm so sorry. And that physical touch must have ignited something in Betty where she comes at her with this axe and the two begin to struggle. According to the autopsy, 
And the two begin to struggle over one another. But Candy eventually gets a hold of the axe. And according to the autopsy, Betty was hit 41 times. Of the 41, Betty's heart was still beating for 40 of them. Most of them went to her head. 28 of those were to her head. The right side of her face was completely destroyed. When people later discovered her body, you couldn't even see the right half of her face. Her eyeball had completely sunken in, and it wasn't until the examiner had gotten a hold of her body that he was able to see that it had fallen into her skull. There were six vertical blows to her head in the same exact spot, so the examiner believed that these were all happening when she was laying down since they were in the same spot, so she wasn't moving around for those blows to change positions. Then on the left side of her face, there were three horizontal blows in various sizes, and the examiner believed that those ones were done while she was still still standing. Then there are huge wounds to the top of her head. There's about seven of them. And to the back of her head, there's three wounds. The examiner noticed that they were oddly shaped. They were a little bit pointer at the top, but wider at the bottom. And that's where he believed that when the axe had gone into her skull, it had become lodged in there. And the person using that weapon had needed to like kind of wiggle it back and forth in order to pull the axe back out of her head. Those three wounds were the ones that were fatal for Betty. That was what destroyed her skull, essentially, and her brain had poured out of her head. After this all occurs, Candy just tries to gain her composure She goes into the bathroom that's in the front of the house and takes a shower while she still has her clothes on. So there's blood found on the bath mat, on the tile in the shower, and on the soap dish. Candy gets in her car. She drives away, and the first place she goes is her home, and she takes her clothes off, puts on clothes of similar colors, and throws the old ones in the wash and she changes her shoes because during the struggle she had a pretty big cut on her foot in between her toes so she bandaged that up she had a wound on her head also from the struggle and there was blood there as well so she covered it up that's when Betty puts on some different shoes and goes about with her day Throughout this, Alan hasn't heard from his wife at all. So he tries calling her at 4 o'clock p.m. And remember, he had left that morning to go on a work trip. So he calls her from the airport. And no answer. So then at 7.45 p.m., that is when Alan arrives to his hotel. He still hasn't heard anything. 
So he tries giving her a call again and she doesn't answer. So he calls his next door neighbor and asks him to go check on the house. While he's checking on the house, he calls Candy, asks if she's heard anything. She said that she did go and see Betty that day and nothing was odd. Nothing was weird. So the neighbor calls Alan back and says, hey, there's only one car in your garage the lights are on, but there there is only that one car, so Betty probably left somewhere. Alan's like, this isn't adding up, but okay. So Alan goes downstairs to have dinner with his colleagues, and he tells the front desk, if I get a call, please send it to me. Have someone in the dining room alert me that I've gotten a call. He doesn't hear anything. So at 10 p.m., he calls his neighbor again, asks him to go check once more, and to give him the numbers for the police and hospital. Neither have reported Betty to be there because Alan thought maybe something happened with the baby and she had to take the baby to the hospital. So he calls Candy. Candy still hasn't heard anything. He calls his neighbor, that same neighbor again, and asks him to please go check one more time. Please go and see. So... The neighbor goes over and notices that he was wrong upon the first glance. There are two cars there. He gets back on the phone and Alan says, you need to get in the house any way possible. I don't care how. I need you to find Betty. So the neighbor begins walking over and that's when another neighbor joins him who had also been called by Alan. And a third neighbor also approaches The three of them walk around the house. They see that some of the lights are on, but it's really quiet. They go to the front door, and one of these neighbors is a realtor, so he assumes he'll have to use one of his keys to try to get in. But the door is already open. So they open the front door. They start to walk around. The first room that they see is the bathroom. And they see the blood that's on the bath mat and in the shower. They already know something's wrong. They go to the baby's room and they see her in the crib. She's covered in her urine and fecal matter. And it's clear that the baby has been crying all day because her voice is hoarse. And one of those three neighbors immediately picks up the baby runs her over to his house and leaves the baby with his wife and tells her to call the police. One of them opens the door to the utility room and all he sees is blood. And he sees part of a body. He shuts the door immediately and knows that this isn't good. One of the others opens the door and he sees more. And he sees that Betty's face is destroyed. So when a call comes in to the Gore house, one of them picks up and it's Alan and he says, okay, clearly if you're answering my phone, you got in, what is going on? And that's when they tell him that Betty is dead, but they tell him she's been shot because that's what they assumed had happened. There are no experts. They see that her face is obliterated half of her face is obliterated there's blood everywhere and they they see that there's blood everywhere and that's what they assumed and that's what 
The police, upon arrival, thought that happened. They thought a gun was involved. And we know now that 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 wasn't the case. And... And obviously we know now that that wasn't the case. In the days that followed, Candy continued to act as normal as she could. Candy cuts up the sandals that she was wearing that day she was at Betty's. And when Candy and Pat drop off their daughter, Alan asks them to stay as he delivers the news that her mom is dead. Later that night, Pat notices that Candy has bruises all over and Candy tells him it's just from doing some housework. And in the days that follow, people are calling the Gore household with prank calls, saying that one of their daughters is going to be next and taunting Alan whenever he picks up. I won't go into all of the detail that encompasses this. I think that HBO and Hulu both do a really good job at depicting the trial Remember, the murder happened on Friday, June 13th of 1980. By June 27th, Candy was arrested. By October, the trial starts. During the questioning, the police are trying to find motive here, and they have a secure alibi, obviously, from Alan about his flight that day. And at first, he's not truthful, but later he does admit to the police that he has had an affair with Candy. And I think the documentaries did a really good job at portraying this. And the trial begins in October of 1980. The trial lasts eight days. Only eight days. After the end of that trial, the jury finds Candy not guilty based on reasons of self-defense. As you can imagine, this made the town crazy. People didn't agree with it. Candy's name was forever tainted. She was known as an adulteress. She wore that scarlet letter on her chest all the time. And she was called a murderer by other people. And throughout the trial, it was illustrated that Candy acted in self-defense. Betty was bigger than her. She overpowered her. She had so much rage. And... We'll never know exactly what happened that day. All we have is what Candy said and what Candy testified in court. For the sake of this podcast and this episode, I really wanted to talk about Betty because she deserved better than this. She deserved better than what was portrayed about her in these shows, although they really highlighted and talked about Candy and Alan really well in the trial, and they covered it in great detail. And a lot of it, they took exact quotes from court documents. Betty was portrayed as this shrill, a short-fused woman who hated everything about life. But from what I read, she wasn't that way all the time. They seem to have taken the worst moments of her and put them in a character for a show. So I encourage you to watch either one the Hulu or the HBO series. Betty had her whole life ahead of her. And this case wasn't that long ago. I hope that leaves some food for thought for today or whenever you're listening to this, maybe before bed, because that's when I like to listen to podcasts. And (laughs) I'm not sure how to fully end this podcast. 
This is so weird. So I'm going to leave it with that. And I'm really excited to talk more about other true crime cases. And I really hope that you enjoyed this. And I hope that you learned something from it. Or maybe you feel inspired to also do your own reading and research into Betty Gore. And I hope that you all feel that she deserved better too. Because she seemed like a woman just trying to figure it out. And someone who really needed more support than she was given. And she did the absolute best that she could. So thank you for listening. That was so disturbing, wasn't it? Okay, that was cheesy. I'm done.